Before we begin the latest episode, it's that time of year again where I raise money for children's hospitals. Each year, my friends and I host a fundraising 24-hour live stream. This year, it'll be happening on Saturday, December 4th, starting at noon Eastern. That's 5 p.m. GMT. This is a stream where we chat, we play games, we generally have a lot of fun, all while raising money for these important charities. We hope you'll join us. And you can still find out more information or donate via this link, which is distractionsmedia.com forward slash charity stream. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And now on with the show. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 156, Lady Margaret, Exile, and Death. From the years 1471 to 1483, the Kingdom of England was in relative peace. Edward ruled the kingdom, continued spotty foreign policy, and generally kept the kingdom from any sort of further crisis. Wales continued its general development into becoming a part of the overall kingdom, and as it did so, it also just became another portion. It was difficult to govern, but no more difficult than, say, the northern parts of England, and no more special to a lot of the mines in London and elsewhere. In that respect, we start to see Wales migrating back into an afterthought, for lack of a better word at this point. In rural areas, the Welsh language continued to flourish, but signs of Welsh governance had effectively passed into English culture. The days of Welsh laws, Welsh governance, and Welsh-only ideals were very much on the back burner. What helped it survive was the Welsh culture. In Brittany, Jasper Tudor continued to stew, unable to affect anything as his position was political prisoner rather than as an actor on the stage. During all of this period, one would be excused if they saw nothing that spoke to a coming of chaos. Edward was secure. Few could doubt that his son, Edward, the Prince of Wales, would reach the age of majority and the safety of a secure kingdom, becoming the first king's heir to reach majority as prince in Henry V. In Wales, the Woodvilles, relatives of the Queen, continued to manage the council, and there, in the stead of the young prince, would continue to try and create a self-governing area, at the same time devaluing the power of the Herberts and their friends, who had completely fallen from grace under Edward. One person who we have not mentioned for a few episodes is Margaret Beaufort, the mother to Henry Tudor. She had a change of fortune yet again in the years of peace. Her second husband, Sir Henry Stafford, one of the rare Lancastrians to fight on the Yorkist side, had died in 1471 after the Battle of Barnet. Widowed once again and without her son, who, of course, was with Jasper, and they had fled the country, she would find herself remarried. Margaret knew that she needed to remain close to the seat of power and being a widow likely did nothing for her. She wanted to protect her son. She knew that in order to do that, she would have to 
achieve a friendship with the queen who had most of the authority, as, of course, the Woodvilles reigned quite completely across England at the time. It appears that she had loved Stafford, so much so that she continued to care for their shared home long after his death, as well as his children from the other marriage. But in the medieval period, you do not survive or thrive as a widow. In 1472, Margaret married Thomas Stanley. Their marriage appears to have been one of primarily convenience. Marrying Stanley allowed her to once again appear in court. The marriage was to her third husband, which appeared to be more businesslike in nature. While they both benefited from the marriage, there was no doubt that it was more about that benefit than about a love relationship or a love match. Probably both missed their previous spouses a lot, from what you can tell from the information we do have. And when we refer to business, we're not just talking about the business of court. They also brought abilities which match very well. Thomas was very good with finances. He was very well known for his ability to handle land. And so having Margaret's massive land act acquisitions that she had gained over the years continued to be something Thomas could do very well. Stanley was a man of property, and he knew how to manage and grow wealth. He was wise enough to see little profit and a lot of downside in getting involved in the past civil wars, so in the end he picked neither Lancaster nor York. This meant that he was hard-headed but flexible, and in an era when people could be upwardly mobile in a shrinking nobility, he definitely benefited. Also, attaching himself to Margaret meant he linked to someone who had inherited a lot of land herself and was commanding enough to continue to be an important noble in the courts of both Lancastrian and Yorkist kings. She might not be a love match, but she was a rather key relationship match. The Stanleys themselves were key allies to the Queen and had married into the Woodvilles, who, at this point, dominated all of the power in England. Love them or hate them, you had to deal with the Woodvilles during the 1470s. By getting married, Margaret put herself in a position to continue to try and convince Edward to recognize the claims of her son as Earl of Richmond and to allow him to return from exile, something that was never far from her mind and is definitely in writing so we know this to be accurate as well something that would never happen if she was outside the halls of power. She made sure to ingratiate herself to Elizabeth Woodville, something that, in all honesty, I'm pretty sure she probably wasn't that enamored to do. But, as of course, this was a woman who was a part of the people who overthrew her son and her brother-in-law. They are part of the issue that she had when they lost all their power. So for her, they caused the separation between her and her son. Yet, for the sake of her son, she would make a relationship with them and continue to try and work with them as best she could. She knew very well she didn't have much choice. There was no other king of England coming over the horizon as far as they could see. Edward was in a secure spot. He would be until he died. There was no further challengers of any significant amount outside of Henry Tudor himself at this stage. And he was just a boy. So realistically, they 
she knew she needed to make Edward happy. In 1482, Margaret worked out an agreement signed in front of the king with her husband that he would not meddle in her lands or anything worth more than 600 pounds that she owned would then be reserved strictly for Henry. This was part and parcel of the negotiations about the safe return of Henry to continue his role as Earl of Richmond and to end his exile. Stories are told by Tudors later that the marriage was arranged between Henry and the king's daughter Elizabeth. This came from Thomas Stanley's recollection, which may it be at best be viewed as biased. It is a negotiation fraught with speculation and propaganda, as it was not mentioned publicly or privately a lot in documents, certainly not with a lot of evidence in the period itself. Later on, of course, there's lots of evidence, but as we'll find out, the Tudors were really good at manufacturing evidence of a lot of things. And realistically, that is the issue. Of course, the fact that this works out in the favor of the later Tudor monarchy, specifically when justifying the overthrow of Richard III, seems a tiny bit convenient if we're being honest with ourselves. Much of King Edward's acceptance of Henry is based on the Tudor heir gaining favor again. As long as he remained exiled in Brittany with Jasper Tudor, there was little chance that he would ever see anything helpful in what the king had offered him, or at least offered Margaret. I'm not sure Margaret really thought her son would get what she saw as his birthright. Her loyalty to him and her love for him was very obvious, and understandable given the circumstances. However, it did appear that she was trying to convince Edward to relent on her son, and on her behalf as much as anything else. Before his death and at some unknown date, Edward appears to have begun the process to bring Henry back into the fold for real, or at least made overtures that way. Likely because the Tudors had remained out of reach for years, it meant that they were reaching a point where the dominance of the Lancastrian heirs was seen as less important, or at least less divisive. We will talk about one particular incident which may explain this, but we'll get into it in a bit. The Duke of Brittany, on the other hand, continued to leverage his rather fortuitous bounty into a reward from England. As long as he continued to ensure that Jasper and Henry were firmly in his grasp, he made Edward happy by further restricting the pair's movements to small fortified towns and eventually to small villas in the middle of nowhere, and in effect trapped them. In October of 1472, the two men were actually moved to Sasinko, a residence of the Dukes in a beautiful, if isolated, area. The gilded cage was very well decorated and supplied, but a cage nonetheless. Jean de Quignac was given charge over the Tudors, and the old admiral gave his full support to their protection. However, this was not to last, as concerns over the possible snatch-and-grab or simple assassination plot in an area that was so close to the sea, forced the Duke to bring in the Tudors into his own court, keeping a much closer eye on them. Fear was now growing that the English, if they did not try and grab him, it might be the King of France who might be the one to make a play on them. King Louis wanted the Tudors in for his own purposes. He had intimated that they should be allowed to travel to their original destination to receive a rather large annual pension he had offered them in. The pension in question was £1,200 a year, and the king suggested that 
not only would this be good for their pocketbooks, but as the head of their household, it would be important for him to respect them. And if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. The reality of it is, of course, is that they would go from being pawns of one king or one noble to another and likely wouldn't have worked out any better for the Tudors than being under the Bretons' control and maybe very much even worse. Louis sent his ambassador to try and work out an agreement in 1474, but there was little he could do to move the duke to bend to his will. Louis, of course, was a very clever king. We've mentioned this on a couple of other occasions, and he knew he had to present a logical and rational argument if he was to see these two men released. He called them his cousins. He said they were effectively his responsibility, as they were, of course, members of his household as relatives. And, of course just if there was any question, to put it clear just how serious the king was treating this, he then added, The king understands not in any way that Pembroke and Richmond, referring to Jasper and Henry, be in any way enemies of the Lord of Brittany, for the king holds them in his esteem and as servants of his household, and that if his servants and the people of the king's household were to be taken, it would seem 
therefore that the Lord of Brittany would want to lead a war against him. And the king does not think that the Lord of Brittany wants, neither does the king have any intention of waging war in his part. So the king is saying clearly, give them up or go to war. The reality of the situation showed that Louis was mostly bluster in this point. In the end, he basically said, fine, keep them. But if you do want to commit any sort of trade or move them somewhere outside of this gilded cage you have them in, then you need to commit to writing and you need to send it to me and you let me in on it before you make a decision. This concession also likely meant very little to Francis, as we'll see, as the king seemed incapable at this point to push any kind of win from him. Francis, likely fearing his charges would be seized by either powerful kings, hedged his bets and split them up. Something that makes sense for Francis, but also likely made Edward less wary of Jasper, because, of course, even if he did come back to Wales, he couldn't threaten the king without the king's possible replacement in tow. In the end, both men moved to different fortresses in the duchy, and they were kept again as prisoners. Henry was not happy about this state of affairs, as he didn't understand why he had to be separated from his uncle. But there was little either man could do about it. They had trusted their fate into the hands of the Bretons, and now they were at their mercy. Henry, since the age of five, had been on the run, never been able to be protected by his mother or others in any shape other than from afar. He was left in the care of people who were outly hostile or foreign to his upbringing. He was now, in the heart of his teen years, very much world-weary already. The years had worn on him such to the point that you could imagine someone of his age being when you spend over ten years on the run or in effective prison. And he would have felt this harshly, I'm sure, being in these gilded and protected spaces as he might have been. They were still cages, prisons, at, and of course at the beck and call of men who had more control than he did. The future king was learning a lot about being used for political gain. The remaining years of the 1470s saw Henry becoming a closed book from any insight we could glean. He learned Latin and French, we know that because there's evidence of it, likely added to his English and Welsh knowledge. He also learned to appreciate French poetry and stories, probably influenced by the rise of French stories on the British king, Arthur, which, of course, from the previous century had been popularized. In fact, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur would be published only a few years later in 1485, which would continue to build an English version of the Hero King. Edward again tried to gain Henry in the winter of 1476. He bribed the Duke enough that Francis finally relented, with suggestion that the Tudor boy be married to the King's daughter. Something, as we mentioned earlier, continues the suggestion that there was to be a marriage between Elizabeth of York and Henry Tudor, making Stanley's story at least plausible. The reality of it is, we don't know how true it was, or how legitimate it was, or whether the king actually ever meant it. We have no way of knowing. As Henry was being transported to meet with the English ambassadors that were to bring him back to England, 
he arrived in St. Malo, he had fell ill. Another situation where the sources do not likely tell the full story. Henry knew that his fate was uncertain the moment the English had him. As long as he remained free from them, he was safe. Once he was in Edward's hands, he who knows what would have happened. So falling ill, in quotes, would be a, the best way to pull off or put off this seeming inevitability, giving Francis some time to have some second thoughts. Realistically, he knew that there was no marriage to Elizabeth coming. If Henry Tudor landed on the shores of England again, under the control of the Yorkists, the reality was that he was on borrowed time at best. Because realistically, friendship or no, linkages or no, Margaret hadn't been able to influence anything her son had been forced through. She'd never really able been able to control what had gone on with him. At best, she'd mildly influence people. This kind of problem would then create issues for Henry. He couldn't obviously be held accountable to the hopes of his mother. He would realistically find himself at the end of a chopping block because he's the one connection, the one problem that Edward IV sees at the moment. And so it makes perfect sense that you take care of the problem. And I think that's where we're headed in this particular case. Luckily for Henry, as he sat ill, the Breton Council met, and the Royal Council were outraged that the Duke had kowtowed to the English, and instead demanded that he protect Henry and not hand him over. They made it clear that handing Henry to Edward would mean the lad's death. There were no uncertain terms here. There was no doubt that there was little to be had of this move, that it would almost certainly be a death sentence to someone that they had kept and cared for and protected for years at this point. It immediately created the time that the Duke needed, having this illness, to allow him to talk to his council, to be swayed by his council, and Im immediately drop the commitment he'd made to the English and put Henry back in safety. The English, upset over this change in mind, tried to take matters into their own hands. They tried to intervene, to capture Henry, to take him from the city and take him back to England. But the problem was he was in sanctuary. He was in a chapel. He was considered to be ill, and he was at best recovering from that illness. And interestingly enough, it was the townspeople who were the most outraged by this intervention and apparently surrounded the chapel to keep Henry safe and out of the English hands. Their intervention helped secure the young man, and he was returned to Breton protection, where, of course, he immediately made a miraculous recovery. Who said the Tudors couldn't act? For years of trying to get his hands on Henry, it appears Edward gave up after this point. And Jasper and Henry continued to live in Brittany, safe from any further machinations by the major powers. In England, with two sons and a daughter, Edward looked to have a fairly stable rule and a son to inherit his kingdom. Edward was just entering into the end of his thirties. He was a young man, relatively. So, everything being equal, he should have a long reign, and then his son, as he grew to adulthood, would then take over. It would make sense. 
the young Prince of Wales was learning how to rule and how to lead, and as he hit his, into his preteens, was starting to come into his own. Edward's brother, the Duke of Clarence, finally expended the last of his luck and was executed for his continued rebellious nature and general disloyalty. The Duke of Gloucester, Richard, had become indispensable in ruling the kingdom, and as long as Edward ruled, had been a force in carrying out his commands. But years of peace, followed by a healthy appetite, led to some rather unhealthy habits, something so much so that was mentioned by his peers. Edward was no longer the lean figure who was active and athletic, but now was very much a king in his middle years. And in this period, he fell ill, possibly as early as March of 1483, and then seemingly out of nowhere, but likely due to his diet and lack of exercise, he died on the 9th of April, leaving a kingdom behind, led by a child once again, and with a number of more qualified and ruthless contenders still alive. And the problem here is, is that there is some whispers that were made that Edward had been poisoned, that there might be another reason why he died so young. I mean, he died at 40. And the biggest issue here is that whenever somebody dies, especially somebody who's a king, in what is considered to be unexplained circumstances, people look to explain it. And if that means explaining it through means that are likely just conspiracies, it doesn't matter. As long as they can explain it in a way that makes sense to them, that makes them happy. Of course, it leads into all that will come after it, but for now, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. If you would have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, if you're interested in donating to the podcast to help us fund the books that I buy to help do the research I need to do, uh, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.